Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Susanna Greer. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Joe. So we spoke, you spoke, I should say, with Lloyd Trotman, Dr. Lloyd Trotman. He's a professor at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. He's an ACS grantee. I'm going to read this cool statement that he's got on his faculty page. And this is, I guess, the reason we spoke with him. We've recently developed the first genetic mouse model for therapy and analysis of metastatic prostate cancer. Now we can test if and how modern concepts of cancer evolution can outperform the 80-year-old standard of care hormone deprivation therapy and turn lethal prostate cancer into a curable disease. What do you think, Susanna? My conversation with Lloyd was so interesting because he he's right, first of all, that the way that we treat prostate cancer hasn't changed for a really long time. So over 60 years, you know, we treat with um, therapies that some patients will develop resistance to. So a big focus and a necessary focus is on how do we treat those patients once they develop resistance uh, to hormone deprivation that's used for prostate cancer? And how do we uh, understand and prevent metastatic disease um, because clearly we need new treatment strategies. So Lloyd's research was interesting because he took us down this pipeline where he began um, around 20 years ago as a postdoctoral fellow just starting to understand how one particular protein seemed really important in regulating how cells divide. Um, and when that protein is changed or dysregulated, that all of a sudden prostates seem to grow. And, and that's not a normal thing. One of the cool things Lloyd told us is that, you know, prostate cells only divide once or twice a year. So he has done a tremendous amount of work to understand this particular protein. It's an enzyme called P10. He's done a lot of really cool work in mouse models, and he just kind of walked us through his career where he was able to move into mouse models and see how important that P10 was for regulating the ability of prostate cells to divide, um, what happened when it goes away. And then he has developed these amazing, we call them imaging techniques, where he can actually see at a single cell level what happens when you lose P10. And then he talked to us about how our ability to sequence the human genome and to sequence cancer cells helped us to understand that an amazing amount of the work that has been done in mouse models and prostate cancer, and specifically in his area, translates directly to patients because many of the enzymes, the proteins, P10 being one of them, that are dysregulated in mouse models of prostate cancer are also dysregulated in human prostate cancer patients, especially in metastatic disease. So it allows for a very targeted treatment strategy. So I think you'll enjoy him taking you down that path. Um, it was a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much, Susanna. Let's get into it. Dr. Trotman started by discussing the challenge faced by patients whose prostate-specific antigen test results, or PSA test results, fall in the borderline range. Many people with today's standard of care land in a gray zone. Their, their picture isn't clear low risk and their picture isn't clear high risk, but they're somewhere in between. So the question is really how can we improve on that gray zone, uh, gray zone where the bulk of uh, um, P10 
people actually uh, lie with prostate cancer and make a sharp distinction to really identify only the 10, 15% and send the, you know, 85% back home uh, or, or um, uh, use very uh, mild therapies on them because their disease is never going to turn lethal. So, okay, of those high versus low groups, obviously, and that's, quite frankly, it's really fascinating that the science behind what we're doing has been intact for 60 years, which speaks well of what we were doing 60 years ago, also yeah, probably <laughs> is an indication of places where, you know, there are there's room certainly for improvement. Um I know that on that improvement side and really trying to push the gamut in prostate cancer, one of your focus is on metastatic disease. So can you talk to us a little bit about the specific challenges associated with folks who really lie outside of that gray region who are more in that high-risk category? Well, um, the high-risk category um, uh, suffers from the fact that um, uh, the, some of the standards of cares that um, deal with the primary tumor um, they won't work anymore. So removal of the prostate, the prostatectomy surgery um, will, will not be helpful. And again, there's this amazing thing and uh, uh, essentially speaking again to the fact of how advanced and how, 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 incredibly, how incredibly visionary and uh, um, uh, bold the situation was 60, 70 years ago, the standard of care of therapy of the lethal form, the, the, the very the advanced form, the metastatic form, is um, anti-hormone therapy, which also was developed in the 50s. And actually, there was a, a Nobel Prize uh, was given to Huggins for that discovery um, that um, hormone withdrawal actually not only affects a normal prostate, but also affects a prostate cancer. It was completely unthinkable at the time that a cancer would respond to the same uh, hormonal uh, uh, cues as the normal gland. So um, the hormone withdrawal was obviously almost like a miracle therapy because it has barely any side effects compared to the chemotherapeutic um, um, therapies that were developed at around the same time. It has barely any side effects. Um, and, and really can result in a massive reduction of um, even metastatic disease burden. The problem is, and that's why we're still here sitting and talking about it, is that um, almost invariably um, the disease will become resistant um, to the hormone therapy, to the anti-hormone therapy, and, and that fact has been with us also for the last 60, 70 years, and um, um, most of uh, science that is dealing with metastatic disease is trying to find out what exactly it is that makes these tumors resistant and how another line of, uh, of therapy could actually um, then go ahead and kill those tumors. Um, but to date, we have not been able to, um, uh, uh, to find that second line of therapy. If we had, you know, we wouldn't be here. The, the disease would be eradicated. So it sounds like resistance is where the challenge lies, and there's a, a big need for new therapies. Um, I know that your lab is focused in one particular direction in this area where you think about studying and this is, I would call, discovery science, right? You're trying to find what yeah. are the molecules that are important 
for metastasis because if we don't if we don't know, then it's a little bit of a, a search to, to try to find exactly. these molecules. So you study an enzyme that seems to be important for metastasis in mice. So let's back up for a second and just help us to understand what an enzyme is, first of all. And then yeah. um, tell us a little bit about this protein and why you think and hope that it, it may be important for, for metastatic disease. Yes, yes. Well, it's a, it's a very, you know, scientifically, it's an extremely fascinating uh, uh, area. So most tissues need essentially two things for either survival, maintaining uh, intact tissue, or let's say growth if they need to grow. Uh, and, and it's this balance between actual nutrient intake, the things that they need to regenerate if there's an injury, the things that they need to maintain uh, a tissue mass to replace cells that have died. But that's not enough. There's the second axis that is uh, what we study, and the axis is, um, is, is what we call the signaling axis. So nutrients alone are not enough. A cell also needs to get a cue, which is like a license there's no energy associated with it. There's no uh, nutrient aspect to that second, uh, uh, essentially, to that second leg that uh, a cell essentially stands on. It's just a license. It's a signal that says you are allowed to live, you're supposed to live, go on. And the process that we're studying especially is, um, uh, is on an enzyme. The enzyme is called P10 that is key in regulating that license, that signal that comes to cells and tells them that they should keep on living. Um, in fact, our enzyme is actually there to keep that signal low so that the cell um, will maintain its shape and the overall uh, prostate gland, in our case, will maintain its shape and be in what we would call a homeostasis, so a steady state. Um, our, our enzyme is making sure that, for example, the prostate doesn't start to grow. It just, after puberty, will maintain its size. And in fact, it's really interesting that prostate, the cells that make up the prostate, they will divide something like once a year. So it's a very conservative tissue. There isn't any growth, unlike, for example, colon or skin that is renewing all the time, the prostate is extremely conservative in terms of, of growth. And our enzyme is there to make sure that that stays exactly this way. And so um, there's the link to cancer. When, when we first started to study this enzyme and the way um, geneticists and basic uh, uh, discovery scientists how we, how we study things is we tinker with it and we start to disrupt it. And so we, we started to disrupt that enzyme and um, uh, uh, looked at animals that had too little of that enzyme. And that was in their entire body, but we realized that the prostate was most severely affected. The prostate immediately started to expand, which is something that it never does. So we realized that this enzyme besides being really, really important to prevent cancers in many other tissues, it has a very, very important role in prostate to prevent cancers from happening. That is really cool. So you, 
what you're telling us is that you study an enzyme and enzymes in particular are going to basically cause things to happen, cause biochemical reactions. And the one that yes. you study is going to keep prostate cells kind of in a really chill state. I can't believe they're Absolutely. dividing once or twice a year. That's crazy. Until Absolutely. there isn't enough of this enzyme and all of a sudden this break is released. So yes. turns out P10 is really critical for um, cancer cells to accomplish one of the things they have to do, which is rapid cell division and rapid turnover. So I want to switch gears just a little bit and help us to understand one of the things you are really well known for are some pretty impressive techniques and ways of viewing, we would call it imaging, the prostate in mice. So help us to understand why these images are so groundbreaking. Why are people so excited about them? And maybe tie that in to P10 and its crucial role in metastatic prostate disease. Yeah, so, so when we started to work um, on mouse models and uh, uh, trying to model what um, a patient actually goes through, the, 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 the actual process that generates a tumor, we were limited um, by the, the ability to actually see what's going on. So the only way for us to see what actually is happening in a tumor or um, um, uh, was essentially to um, sacrifice the animal and look at the tissue uh, or do a surgery and look at tissues, just like in humans. So we could not really see how a tumor is behaving. Um, and so that's perhaps comparable to a scenario where you have a patient and imagine there is no radiology, there is no imaging, and you can't see if there are metastases or if there aren't. You can give a therapy, but you can't really tell if the therapy has the desired effect or if it doesn't because you just can't measure the tumors and the metastases. And the only way to really do that in the model systems at the time was to kind of cheat. And the cheat was you would take, for example, human cancer cells, perhaps prostate cancer cells, and tra transplant them into the mouse. And while that gave very nice images, clearly it doesn't reflect the biology of a human tumor. Right. And so we, we managed to develop a technique that has the best of both worlds. We managed to um, uh, tweak single prostate cells with the surgery so that all of a sudden they would lose, for example, the gene P10, um, and the whole process of proliferation would start just with a single cell. But we would also be able to introduce um, a, 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 a shining light gene, essentially, so that we could then see that tumor and those cells we could see them through the skin. And so at the end of the day, we were able to have uh, this best of both worlds scenario, a mouse that has developed its own native tumor with a single prostate cell, all of a sudden flipping some genetic switches, and us being able to see those cells in real time, see how they first expand in the prostate, but then make the jump out of the prostate into other tissues, and on top of that, 
we could then see what happens when we, for example, um, do hormone therapy on that mouse. So when we would castrate that mouse, we could then see how the disease went back, perhaps to levels that were undetectable, but then all of a sudden there was this relapse and we could see, just like in human, how invariably, after any kind of therapy that we give, there is a, 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 a actually lethal metastatic disease developing that will kill the mouse. So we were able to recapitulate in a very nice way the endogenous history and the endogenous process of um, prostate cancer. And so, obviously, we had to start to study that because there's so much in there, uh, of course, so many things that we don't know anything about. Um, and so we now have our own, uh, essentially, patient set, our own way of uh, getting at the, the answers of what metastasis actually is. So if you can have a better idea of what metastasis is and you have this... Uh, quite frankly, really cool system of understanding how changing the different levels of different enzymes like P10 and others impact metastasis and response to therapy. That all sounds awesome, but I am more concerned about prostate cancer in humans than in mice, as are you. So can you help us understand how do you make that transition? How do you move this fascinating data to humans? Yeah, so the first, the first uh, uh, thing is we're starting at this common node, um, this uh, essentially ground zero um, uh, our, of our genomes. So the things that we're seeing in the animal genome as being critical for the distinction between indolent tumors, prostate tumors that we shouldn't worry about, and aggressive prostate tumors that have a very high likelihood of metastasizing, if we do a very precise analysis, can we see that happen in human as well? And so we are lucky enough here at Cold Spring Harbor that there's always obviously discovery research going on in, in many aspects, and one of them has been in technology um, the first genome, whole genome sequencing of single cancer cells uh, was performed here at the lab. And we learned this technology from the people who developed it. So that was a student at the time, uh, uh, Nicholas Navin, working in the lab of Michael Wiggler with Jim Hicks also. And so the, the three of them developed this technology that allows us to get the cancer sample and look at the genome of every single cell to understand if we have different clones that are competing with each other or if there is essentially one type of cancer that's evolving and is winning out over competing uh, uh, types of cancer. And this kind of precise analysis also allowed us to look at the very earliest stages of cancer. So when somebody first comes to the clinic and gets a biopsy, we can then use essentially a byproduct, something that they would wash away in the water, um, because it still contains plenty of cells that when we look at them cell by cell by cell, we will find out if they have hallmarks of metastatic disease. 
And when we do this uh, kind of analysis, we do in fact see that there are some 10 to 15% of men who already carry within them cells that have the exact genetic rearrangements that we use to make metastatic disease in mouse. And that's again the same rearrangements that we know will be seen in 50 to 60% of metastatic uh, patients. Uh, uh, so when we take metastatic samples, they will also have these changes. They will have many more changes on top of that, but this is what appears to be the, uh, what appears to be the seed for metastatic disease, as we can show in mouse. So um, we think that this kind of precise analysis that can be done on patients when they first come to the clinic is going to be very important because it's a clear indicator for um, uh, uh, a class of patients that have um, more aggressive disease than most other men. And so far, I was mentioning the, um, the standard of care that goes back 60 years, uh, isn't based on hard facts. It's based on histology analysis. What does a tissue look like? It takes a, a pathologist, a trained eye, it takes them years to develop that eye and make a call based on what they see. In fact, it's also often the case that if they look at the same sample again a year later, they might call it slightly different. So the same observer might have a different opinion over time. And then obviously, different observers might also have different opinions. Well, not so with the genome. If we do that analysis, we get hard facts back, and we know exactly if uh, the two genes, the P10 gene, the P53 genes, if they are normal or if they are not. So um, we're thinking um, that uh, this is the kind of information that, can, that we can now bring back to the clinic. And um, uh, in fact, that's what we're working on with uh, local hospitals here. So there's the Northwell Health Hospital System on Long Island, uh, who we're collaborating with very intensely to um, uh, help the pathologists with new hard fact measurements and then ask the questions if that improves the standard of care. That's amazing. So in your, in the span just of your career, you have discovered enzymes that are critical for prostate cell division. You have found that they are dysregulated in cancer and particularly dysregulated in metastatic prostate cancer. You can now image single cells to see what happens when these enzymes are lost and the impact on cell division and movement. And now you've directly correlated that to human disease and therapeutic practice. I mean, that's, that's pretty phenomenal when you think about all of that in one package. So I imagine you must there must be lots of things that you are incredibly excited about, but I think we'd all like to know kind of what are you most interested in and excited about right now in your research? So it's um, exactly what, what we've touched on now. We used to make our discovery research on models and on cells, but the past few years essentially have allowed us to do actual discovery research on human samples. And that's really, really exciting. Um, I think the, the, our, our expertise with the models has sharpened our senses um, 
to, on the one end, look for things that we didn't expect in the mouse. Now we look for, we found them, and now we look for them in human. But on the other end, we're also looking for completely unexpected things um, uh, that, as discovery scientists, you're more curious about and and more more trained to actually follow up on. And so, uh, since we now started to look at uh, human samples. And that is largely possible through the generosity of, of people who, who are um, uh, willing to donate tissues um, uh, of their biopsies, for example, um, to science. We are starting to discover things that are extremely exciting, and I think that's where the real transformation uh, is going on. So we are grateful, of course, to all that you've done and to all the wonderful people that you've trained and the impact that you're making. I know that you have been funded by the ACS earlier in your career and um, you actually now serve as a peer reviewer for us. So that's another thing we're grateful to you for. I'd be interested to know, is there a way that ACS has impacted your career or your research in particular that you could share with us? Yeah, well, <clears throat> the ACS allowed us um, to do a project that I still, I, it's one of my proudest moments. Um, it is a, a basic discovery moment. Um, I, we, we have been talking about this enzyme, the P10 enzyme, and, you know, that enzyme was discovered as a major, major break of cancer in uh, 1997. So, uh, you know, uh, that's 22 years ago. But it was only some four years ago or five years ago, thanks to the, the funding of, um, by ACS, that we really understand how this enzyme actually works inside a cell. And it is, it is still mind-blowing, and we're still trying to come uh, to grips with what this actually means. So we were always thinking of this, um, as I mentioned, it is blocking signals from entering the cell, essentially. Signals that tell the cell, yes, you're allowed to grow. And if we, if we let those signals uh, uh, be abundant, that's the first thing that will happen. Um, the prostate will start to grow. And that's the, the, the precursor to cancers. And so it was natural to assume that um, you know, the signals, they arrive at the cell surface. So it was natural to assume that this is where um, the P10 enzyme is blocking the signals and preventing them from actually coming in. So we found that uh, this is not at all the case, but that in fact um, the cell is taking these signals in, but it's taking them in in a very, very special way. It's, uh, it's packaging those signals through a process that is called endocytosis, so um, uh, uh, signals arrive at the cell surface, but then are, are formed into little snowballs, essentially, and taken inside the cell. And that is exactly when P10 starts to act. So P10 acts in a sort of divide and conquer mode. It doesn't just chase signal at the, uh, uh, at the surface of the cell. It waits for the process uh, of uh, packaging them and getting them inside the cell, and then it attacks them one by one by one by one. And this is, this is just such a fundamental um, uh, uh, step forward in realizing how nature has decided to make sure that a cell doesn't grow 
that we're thinking there's a lot there in terms of potential of helping this process that we just did not understand because nobody would have guessed that this is the, the way uh, things actually work. And that also drives new therapeutic options that certainly 22 years ago we would never even consider it. And it sounds like our predictions would have been quite wrong as to how to intervene in this process. Absolutely. It, it places, it, it tells us that um, uh, P10 doesn't just roam around and do its job. There's a very tightly controlled process that allows it to engage and keep the cell at a steady state. So by understanding now this process, we can support it. We couldn't do that before. Nice. Nice. That's really exciting. So that was just you said four years ago, so you made a tremendous amount of progress, and I, I imagine what will happen in the next five and ten years will be even more impactful. I, I would love to hear what you might share with our listeners who are cancer patients or caregivers. Is there a specific message that you would like to share with them, um, specifically about prostate cancer, metastatic disease, and what you see on the horizon? Yeah, well, I would say that um, we should keep our faith in discovery. There are many, many things in the world that have changed um, that are entirely unpredictable, um, that are solely due to people coming together and doing basic discovery. So, you know, if you think of the Internet, nobody could have ever predicted an Internet revolution because nobody could have imagined what those little breakthroughs that happen in isolation, what they could actually do when people get together and when people can be connected. All of a sudden, there's a kind of synergy that, is, that would have been completely uh, unthinkable because all of a sudden you're able to connect people worldwide. So the, this kind of ingenuity that um, uh, comes by when uh, people can, can, can cooperate across the globe is, is extremely uh, impactful. And, um, and again, it's not predictable, um, uh, uh, it's not predictable, not foreseeable. And the same thing is the, is the case with, with um, discovery. Um, if you take the the most recent, uh, let's say, breakthroughs that are uh, in the news today, um, for example, the, the, the CRISPR gene editing revolution, these are things that essentially for, for most of us came out of nowhere. And that's because it had to do with people that studied at first in almost isolation, you know, the, the biology of making yogurt. The, which is the basis of uh, bacteria that get infected. You know, yogurt company doesn't want bacteria to get infected. And so they study how that works and how the bacteria fend off uh, um, uh, their, their viruses. And out of that, all of a sudden, comes the realization that there is an amazing new genome editing tool. And because of the connectedness of science, this actually gets uh, understood and gets developed and then has a dynamic that is beyond what we could have thought, you know, about 10 years ago. 
The same thing for uh, example, um, cancer in cancer, the, you know, the, the latest breakthrough, actually Nobel Prize, the latest breakthrough um, um, is uh, immunotherapy in cancer. This is also a process that was a niche uh, uh, kind of project, and it was done exclusively in mice. So Jim Allison studied uh, cancer immunity uh, in mice only, exclusively. Everything that he found out about how the system works came from uh, his mouse studies. And again, nobody could have predicted that this is the most impactful translational research um, that we have today. So the challenge is really to have some faith in people that do basic research. And as long as we are connected enough to translate our discoveries, to exchange our discoveries, um, we are able to create synergies that go beyond what we could imagine today. And that's, I think, uh, behind the groundbreaking things. It's the translation is the part when, when many people are involved, when, when things are getting clear. But the discovery is the amazing part where connectedness uh, matters. Well, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If the ACS will continue funding some extraordinary basic cancer research and some extraordinary scientists and encouraging you to collaborate, share your data, the flip side is you keep doing what you're doing. We are so excited about your work and honestly just grateful that you took a few minutes to share it with us today. Sure, that's a great deal. I'm, I'm always excited to talk to the ACS. It's been uh, extremely important for my own career and that's also why I'm a reviewer at the, uh, at the study section there. It's extremely important for other people's careers as well.